I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. Hi everyone. We're in for a really fun show today. My guest on today's podcast is Joe Scaretta. And what is fun about listening to Joe talk is he is speaking from the eyes and perspective of someone who has never had an eating disorder. Joe has worked at hospital levels. He's worked at residential programs. He's now in his own private practice. So he has definitely worked in the trenches of eating disorders, although, as I said, has never experienced one himself. We talk about a bunch of different things in this episode. We talk about understanding ambivalence. Joe said before he was trained to work with eating disorders, he would think to himself, why wouldn't anybody want to get better? He didn't understand it until he started specializing in eating disorders. He also has this great perspective as someone who's never recovered when he's running family groups. He has the ability to talk to supports and say, listen, I know you don't get it. I understand. I also understand because I'm in the trenches with your loved one, daughter, son, whatever. I get it from both perspectives. And this is why I want you to hear what I have to say. Joe said something that I thought was really interesting that often when it comes to family work, there's a lot of heat that families bring. I like to say fear. (laughs) And yet there's just not enough insight, which actually then causes conflict. And so again, it's very interesting having this come from Joe's perspective. We also talk about the fact that unfortunately, this has a high mortality rate, but not only because of medical complications, unfortunately, suicide is high in eating disorder clients. So we talk about not just saying if somebody's physically and medically well, that they're completely out of danger of some other really big result. So I think it's going to be a really fun episode. I invite you all to sit back and listen, and I hope you enjoy listening as much as I did recording. Okay, let's go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. Our guest for today is Joe Scaretta. Joe, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. So happy to have you, Joe. So 
Joe is a therapist in New Jersey, right? New Jersey or New York, Joe? I apologize. New Jersey. I'm in New Jersey. Yep. 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 So Joe is a therapist in New Jersey. And Joe and I know each other because we were both working at a Montanito facility, different facilities, but still collaborated quite a bit. So Joe and I know each other, have known each other for a few years. And this is going to be a very interesting podcast because Joe has never experienced an eating disorder. That being said, Joe has a tremendous amount of information about people struggling with eating disorders. He is intimately at residential settings, worked with clients with eating disorders. So Joe, I am thrilled that you're here. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what you're doing right now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so like you said, I, I worked at uh, Montanito uh, in New York for about four years as a primary therapist. And then my last year as uh, the facility's lead therapist. And basically they just let me train people, which was, which was a lot of fun. I got to teach my colleagues how to do some of this work and, uh, you know, mentor some, some up, up and coming people who are, you know, I think now doing really well, but I left Montanito, uh, in 2019. And then in late 2019, I started my, my own practice and I've been working there now, um, since then. And that's in downtown Westfield. So it's like right in the middle of kind of Northern New Jersey, right, really close to the city. Uh, and I've been seeing people in my office since then, uh, full time. Great. Great. So Joe, I'm going to go right into this and ask you, what is it like being in this field as a non-recovered professional? How has that, what has impacted you the most? And how has your not having had the experience of the eating disorder actually helped your clinical skills? You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, as a non-recovered person, I think I walked into this with, uh, a different set of expectations, I guess, especially because so so my journey didn't begin at Montanito, where you know a lot of therapists kind of get their their starts and and have really built their careers. So I, I didn't get exposed to this philosophy of recovered. And you know, between my my undergraduate psychology training and then my graduate school social worker training, I heard so many different takes on what the end point looked like for eating disorders. You know, people don't get better. So a lot of people who don't do eating disorder work that I kind of learned from in graduate school, oh, the, that population's impossible. They don't change, you know, just refer, refer, refer out, um, which I walked into graduate school knowing that this is what I wanted to do. So I, I heard that and I was like, I don't really agree. But it was up there. It was in my head. And then I started working at Montanito and then um, this idea of, recovered at all kind of got introduced to me. And then um, not only was it introduced to me, I was working for recovered people. You know, they were my supervisors and my colleagues, and I'm suddenly surrounded by all these people who had eating disorders um, and all these really intimate experiences with them. And I was walking in just thinking, well, we're going to make this all better for everybody and, and people are going to get better and I'm going to really add to it because I'm going to work so hard to be the best. Um, and I'm trying to put the words to it. It's, it was strange to think that that's what it could be. And not having that intimate experience for myself was a little bit of ignorance, I think actually helps if that makes sense. 
like I, I didn't understand it. So in having this eagerness to be really good, but not knowing much about it, I would just ask like all these questions. <laughs> like my recover colleagues probably got way more of me than they ever bargained for. Cause I just wanted to know. Yes. Yes. I heard you say, though, something about like, I'm going to come in and I'm going to take care of this. And a few things that you and I have talked about either before the recording or in the past is, and I'm not trying to put you in a box, but we did talk about what your mentality and upbringing was, which is I'm the classic male fixer. So I'm going to come in and I'm going to fix these clients. How did that work for you, Joe? <laughs> well, just the way you're asking the question to me says you already know the answer. Yeah, did that work um, out well? It, did that have a good ending, <laughs> Joe? I bet it didn't. It, it it has a place, but it shouldn't be your lead. And and I think as an eager learner, which I, I think that's mostly why people took a chance on me in the beginning is because I, I really had... Some experience, uh, you know, applying to to Montanito and to some other eating disorder positions, but not much. I, I wasn't. I don't think I was that impressive of a candidate. But I think I interviewed well because I was eager and I wanted to help and I wanted to do well for people. I mean, that's my take on it anyway. Um, but it doesn't work well when people haven't made up their minds yet. That those that you're serving are clients when they haven't made up their mind fixing things feels like an attack. And for a long time, I would step on that porcupine spike over and over and over. And I couldn't figure out why I wasn't being as successful as I had set my intentions to. Because this is a, a trickier illness than I thought it was in the beginning. And again, I, I had some great role models. I watched people do great eating disorder work with you know with, with some decent success. And, and I was like, all right, if they can do it, I can do it. But it it's harder than that because people really have to decide for themselves what they want. And then there's some fixing to be done, but I put the fixing first in the beginning and that, that doesn't work out. Yeah. You and I have also spoken about what you were, I don't know if you were surprised by it, but I feel like this is what you're speaking to is really understanding ambivalence with the recovery process. And I'll speak for my own experience. I was ambivalent through most of my recovery process. And so how did you work with ambivalence? I think that's, to me, at this point in my career, after doing this for a while and, and having really an interest in eating disorders professionally for about 10 years, um, I think that's the lesson that has sunk in most deeply for me, that that people really aren't sure what they want. Um, and if they're sure in front of you, the second they leave, they're not. And then even in the middle of a conversation, they're having a flip-flop in their head back and forth 20 times. And as a fixer, I think making up your mind is such a simple step, you don't even realize you're doing it, right? Like, like if I'm going to... Um, Let's say I'm gonna uh, like fix something in my in my apartment or something like that. Uh, the decision to fix it is 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 so obvious. It's broken, so I want it to be well. I want it to work, whatever the thing is. So fixing it is just that first obvious step. It's not like that with an eating disorder. It just isn't. And as, as a fixer, kind of classic male who wants to go in and make things better for people. Um, 
that's a hard thing to reconcile with because again for me it's just an assumption like of course of course you want to make it better but that's not that's not what an eating disorder feels like on the inside and again as it's kind of connect that back to your other question of not being a recovered person i didn't understand that for a long time like why wouldn't you want this to be better it doesn't make any sense to me the, the interesting thing is is there's a difference in my mind's eye between fixing and healing there's a really big difference. And so when I was imagining what you were saying, like I have something in my apartment and it needs fixing, I was trying to look at it from the two different perspectives. Fixing is putting back together, hammer and a nail, nail it in, walk away. Healing is sort of understanding how it broke in the first place. Are there other parts that got splintered in the process? You know, is there a different way of putting this back together? I feel like that's the difference between fixing and healing. And I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. I I think that that's a good point. Uh, I, I think an object doesn't, like if I'm fixing a, a broken bookshelf, let's say, that object has no interests. It has no desires, no dreams, no goals, no opinions. It's just there. And whether I fix it or I don't, it doesn't care. People are not like that. People are not things to be fixed. I think people are things to be worked with, not worked on. And as, again, kind of a classic male fixer type, I I think I viewed myself as like kind of this clinician who could come in make everything better for people. If I just learned enough, studied enough, worked hard enough, you know, listen to the right people. And, you know, I, w- I would constantly be pestering my mentors at Montanito for, you know, little gems and tips, which is probably how you and I <laughs> formed our relationship at the beginning. I probably asked you a thousand questions because <laughs> I know that that's what I was like when I first started. And I still have that to some extent. I- I'll still shamelessly steal wisdom, but it's a different thing to stand next to someone as a real egalitarian equal. I'm not better than you. You're not better than me, but you have this thing you want help with. How much help do you want? What do you want to change? Do you even agree with my assessment of what's wrong? You know, I'm the professional. I'm supposed to be the guy who knows everything, quote unquote, but we might see things totally differently and and kind of moving from this top down perspective to shoulder to shoulder. What is it that you want to work on? I work, I work for you. That shift has taken time for me as someone who, again, like what used to be more pushy and oomphy about people making changes that really they weren't ready for. You know what is going through my mind right now? I'm wondering if you ever ran family group at Montanito or anywhere else. (laughs) For my entire time there from the time that, that that I really was was uh you know given the reins to to do groups uh and, and really you know function as as a full staff member I ran Saturday multifamily group my my entire career <laughs> by the way is one of the best groups ever the multifamily group and multifamily groups are at all facilities and all you know all treatment centers and everywhere um the thing is is that you and I were talking before we started recording. And I said, Joe, let's talk about what doesn't work for somebody who's not 
been through the, the, the process of an eating disorder, but what gifts and pearls and nuggets do you have as somebody who's who has never experienced it? And I wonder how you were able to use that in multifamily group when either parents or partners or friends came with this mentality of like, can't you just fix them? Why aren't they fixed yet? Why aren't they just doing it? I bet you had the best perspective of all because you were completely immersed in the field of the clients struggling, yet you can understand from the, from the support's perspective. So how did that help? Oh my gosh. Uh, that, that is such a good question. It, it was really for me as a, as a therapist in training, uh, a mirror of my own mistakes in a lot of ways. So I'm watching, you know, typically it's a dad, but, but really everybody, um, who participates in those groups tends to have a, you know, make this better feeling, which is why they're showing up. Right. Um, and watching, so many family members and supporters and loved ones, spouses, wives, everyone, uh, push, push, push for change and only getting back resistance. Cause the, I, I think they did, they were doing the right things just again, too early. Like they, they hadn't really learned what this was about for the person and, you know, offering them these, these replacements, which I think is, is such a big piece of it. Um, I, I got, to, I had to watch them make the same mistakes I was making in the week on that one weekend group and then, you know, kind of putting out the fires that resulted from it. So for me, it was sort of a, a an opportunity to, to learn what not to do and then try and take that energy and put it to some good use. So I, I don't think the enthusiasm for people getting well was misplaced. I think it was just kind of applied without understanding, if that makes sense. A lot of heat, not a lot of light and insight and using that to kind of get people to slow down and ask questions. I mean, I think that's such a big part of it. Like for fixer types, just pushing for change without understanding is really, uh, you know, treating without diagnosing, right? Like what, what are we really trying to accomplish here? Well, well, you know, getting someone to stop doing an eating disorder behavior, it's, it's really not that scientifically complicated. I don't think you need a graduate degree to figure out what, you know, what, what steps someone has to take to, to not have an eating disorder, right? Eat normally over time, resist every temptation and urge. But why would someone want to change that? Getting families to stop and do that, that was the hard part. Yeah, I bet. Do you feel that family members or like we said, partners, spouses, whatever, do you feel that they were surprised when you would give kind of this message of, yeah, you know, yeah, by the way, your put it in, put, you know, insert here, son, daughter, partner, whatever, does know how to take a fork, get a piece of chicken and put it in their mouth. We all know how to do it. But did you ever, like, how did people process, shall we say, when you said, and there are a million reasons though, why in their mind's eye, they cannot do this. Did you get sort of like, I, I used to get gasps from parents and being like, what do you mean? I don't understand. So any thoughts? <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, I think my, my favorite group topic to do, which if any of my colleagues who ran that group with me uh, are listening to this are going to groan because I, I love, this is my favorite one to do. Why does getting better feel so bad? It's the best topic. 
Ah, uh, my favorite, my f- absolute favorite. You, I, I, if there was a, if there was a Saturday, I'm like, I don't know what group to do. And I'm talking to my, my co-therapist, you know, co-leader. Uh, they know I'm going to suggest that one and they were just trying to steer it away. So we wouldn't do it. But I, I just think it bears repeating endlessly. I really do. I, I think you could do a 10 hour group on why getting better doesn't, why, why getting better feels so bad because it does. I think that's, that's one of the weird things. Again, as a non-recovered person, I didn't get I just didn't understand. This is an illness. Illnesses feel bad. Getting better from an illness feels good. So why don't we just get better? You know, it's it's so logically simple. And again, you can hear the fixer coming out, right? But it doesn't work like that for eating disorders. It just doesn't. And I think that's one of the things that kind of a specialist therapist brings to the table is I've heard it from so many different people across the diagnostic spectrum, right? Um, you know, it doesn't really matter what the eating disorder is. Giving it up hurts. And family members, I think understandably, see how much it hurts to keep the eating disorder, right? Like like they, they're the ones who are doing the midnight janitor shift for emotional wreckage, right? Like they're the ones who are getting those 2 a.m. phone calls, screaming, crying. I, you know, I did this behavior today, that behavior today, come get me while you're three hours away. I don't care. I'm suffering. So it's just, they, they see how bad it is. And that's what they remember, understandably. What they don't see is all the good stuff that's going on on the inside. That 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 the eating disorder serves the person, um, and and having those conversations. Can I interrupt for but, one moment? Of course. And then course. I want you to keep going because this is beautiful. I want to just say one thing: the perceived good stuff that's going on on the inside. It's not good. It's all about perception. And that's why it's so hard for, uh, for people that aren't struggling to understand because they don't, they don't carry the same perception. But please keep going, Joe, because I love this. Tell me more or tell listeners more about why getting better feels so bad. I think getting better feels so bad because it's really more of a loss in the beginning than anything else. And and I think as humans, we're, we're so programmed evolutionarily to just recoil from pain, right? You put your hand on a hot stove. You don't need to teach anybody to not do that, right? I mean, as, as a kid, my mom would cook all the time. Once I think once when I was little, I, I touched the burner before it was really cooled off. I never did it again. And I still remember that now. I must have been like five or six. Uh, and I still remember how much that hurt now. When someone starts to get better, that, that's all they get. That's really all they get. That, that is the reward for trying is you get to feel worse for a while. And talking someone who's so worn down, so raw, so upset, so defeated inside to keep going when that happens, to choose it on purpose, like every day you're gonna walk, you're gonna wake up and put your hand on a stove six times a day. And by the way, you're not gonna compensate between those moments, which is like keeping your hand on there. Again, as a non-recovered person, I didn't get that part until someone really explained it to me. And I was, you know, kind of walking all over my client's interests for a while because it's hard to understand. Yes. The other reason why getting better feels so bad is often what happens is when you start taking away the behaviors, all of those feelings that you stopped feeling while you were in eating disorder come back. So I, for my own experience, once I stopped numbing myself out with my eating disorder behaviors, 
was pretty much right back at the same place I was starting when behaviors began helping to not feel anxiety, fear, low self-esteem, depression, whatever it is. And then you're like, you got to be kidding me. So now you're asking me to go right back to the place I was before. And I say, no, now I'm asking you to tolerate it, but you've got support. You've got skills. You've also got a well-fed brain. You're not purging everything. You're not binging. So it, it feels like it. In fact, sometimes it feels even more extreme because you've numbed your feelings out for so long. But I, it, I'm not asking you to go back to that same place without a lot more in your tool belt, right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And again, I think another piece that I developed over time in working with my recovered colleagues is, is appreciating how misleading the early phases are. Because you're right, like you, you're you're suddenly dealing with kind of an emotional credit card that you've been swiping for a long time, ignoring those bills. Now, nah, just you know, if it's not, if I don't look at it, it's not there. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're starting to get better, and you're like, okay, I have to actually deal with all these these you know backlogged feelings, kind of all at once. It can be very overwhelming, and showing people that. You know, when my clients kind of get discouraged, I talk to them about how, so I used to do a lot, I, I used to have this group at Montanito called Special Topics, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And I kind of I got to treat it as my 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 playground and, and, and kind of come up with groups and be creative and, you know, just, just add something different to the schedule. And I would always try and put um, together Q&As with, with the recovered staff. So, you know, the clients had this dedicated hour to really take advantage of something special about uh, you know, what, what we were offering in Monsanto and, and really getting people to uh, see that there's something on the other side of this. And I would always ask kind of these core questions to the staff member, just so the client's got a kind of common understanding of, of this process. And I would always ask them, would you ever want to go back? You know, are you, are you interested? You know, you see all these people in this place, some of them are doing, some of them are doing some of the same things you would do. Would you want to go back? And the answer I always heard was some variation of, not no, but like, why would I want to do that? And to me, that says that they know how to do what their eating disorder was doing for them. So it's not just like a, a no, it's, it's no. And I, I just think it's a waste of time. It's like, instead of getting from point A to point B in a straight line, we're going to do a squiggle. How is that advantageous to me? I know how to deal with sadness now. I know how to deal with guilt. I know how to deal with uh, a conflict I'm having with someone. I don't have to use an eating disorder behavior. So why take the hard road when I, I, know, the, I know the better one? I also know what I'm feeling today is not going to be forever. And I'll be okay. I will get through this feeling. But that's a hard pitch to make when someone's in early early phase, right? Like, cause that, that's all they're getting. All they're getting is this kind of cycle of emotion that doesn't have a, a clear end. And I, I think for a lot of people, why they don't start or why they don't stick with it is it's too risky. I mean, you know, you say it's going to get better, but I'm over here on a, on a, you know, on an emotional level, kind of on fire. And you're making me all these promises that you're saying will come later. Well, I'm on fire now. So what do you got? <laughs> Joe, this is where I am going to say, for me, as a recovered therapist, that's where 
in my, and I'm just, again, I say this all the time. I'm speaking from my, I hold a tiny bit more weight than you do. No pun intended on an eating disorder podcast. I can say, oh, how do I know? Because I've been there, done that. And what I also want to say, if I wasn't recovered, I would probably say, because like you, I have felt on fire before. Like you, I have been in anxiety and depression and fear and conflict. So the difference is, or the difference for me, Joe, is I know more intimately about the behavior that they use. But that's that. So at first, I'm now I feel like I'm speaking out of two sides of my mouth. At first, I was like, oh, Joe, I've got a leg up on you. But then I'm like, no, no, I don't. I think this is where the eating disorder field has an opportunity to catch up to the substance abuse field, where where peer mentorship is such a, a, an assumptive part of that, right? You go to NA, you go to AA, you're going to get a sponsor at some point if you keep going. There is not that current natural assumptive analog for eating disorders. And as an eating disorder professional who's not recovered, I really rely on the examples of my recovered colleagues as what I will point to if I'm in, you know, I, if I can't just call you up on this in the middle of a session and say, Karen, can you talk to this person? You know, I, I can't do that. So I have to say, I, I have heard this from my recovered colleagues before and, and I understand what you're saying, but it, it's, it, it is like this. It is like these stories I've been told, but it's so much different when you have that live in person, you know, voice. And, and that's one of the things I really miss as a private practitioner now versus working in a treatment center where I could just, you know, literally I'll open the door in the middle of a group and be like, Hey, can you come in here for two seconds? And just got to talk about this. And, and it really does make a difference. I will say when you're working with a good team, it is so much fun. And I know that we all, meaning you and I, we did work at a place that had the luxury that we could be like, totally ourselves and like say to the group, uh, let me put this on pause for a second. And I would open the door and say, excuse me, you know, nurse so-and-so, you got to come up here right now. Or, or, you know, colleague X, I don't know why I can't think of anyone's name right now. You got to come up here right now. That's, that's just me reminiscing for a moment. What I miss about working with this like intimate team. They were my family. They were my family. And after you've done that for a while, you, you kind of know who to bring in, you know, on a particular topic. You're like, you know, someone who's so rigid with their meal plan, like they're going to do it, but they're going to count the grains of rice. Well, I have a colleague who used to do that, right? Like, can you come in here and talk about rigidity with food and how, you know, look, if, if you're actually going to count the grains of rice and eat them, you know, if you're working on restriction or, or whatever it is, if that's going to help you get that meal plan in, okay, fine. Like that actually worked for, for this person. But if that's the way it's going to stay forever, I'm going to have a hard time seeing how you're going to become this free eating person and how that's going to evolve into this end game of really not having these self-imposed rules anymore. But but having that live example, I, th I think really just does make a difference. I, I don't think it's necessary. I think people have gotten kind of better on their own in this sort of guerrilla style, you know, independent treatment. It, it, it has happened for sure. But having a, a role model, I mean, again, like you and I are both therapists. Have we, in our training, were we ever just thrown into things 
without some kind of supervision. No, we were given these assigned role models to go talk to and learn from. Makes sense for therapists. I think it makes sense for people trying to get better too. Yeah, yeah. I hate to say it, there were there were times in my training where I was thrown in. <laughs> I think I think we're all given that that those opportunities sometimes. I'm like, uh, I have a different answer, Joe. But okay, that's just like that's for a, a whole another podcast. What it feels like as a therapist to just be thrown right in. <laughs> yeah, I, I have had my throw in moments, but they were. I was at least given some kind of person to go cry to if they didn't go well. Um, and I, I just, that, that role modeling of having someone who's been there before, it makes sense when we're learning anything else. Um, but, you know, I think, I think that's where really like the field could, and I think that there are, there are efforts like that going on right now. I know Project Heal has their um, uh, communities uh, of people that you can connect to that are recovered or are deep into recovery as role models. There, there is stuff that's emerging, but I hope it gets bigger and better. Just like, like I said, in the substance abuse world, you're going to have that community. I, I think that that really works for eating disorders too. I completely agree with you on that. Let me sort of switch gears here a little bit because, you know, we're talking about all these really wonderful things and I want to sort of say, okay, let's also bring it down a notch to the truth of this has the second highest mortality rate. It used to be the first. The first is now the opioid epidemic. The second highest mortality rate of any mental illness. And the reason why I said, let's bring it down a notch, not to like quiet you and I, Joe, but there's a, you know, there's a part of us that are like, you know, bantering back and forth and we're having fun and we're reminiscing a little bit, but like, let's also sort of say, okay, what about this? How, like, Joe, how is it for you working with a population with such a high mortality rate? I mean, I, I used to think I was very well suited temperamentally to work in this population because I share some similar traits with people who have eating disorders on a personality level. I'm I'm a little perfectionistic. I'm a little high strung. I uh, you know like things in order. I like doing things well and and you know having high standards. Um, and I'm like, okay, I have all these great matches, but there are some things I didn't know about when I really got into it. And I knew eating disorders were dangerous, but um, I have lost clients in the past. It's, it's very, very upsetting. Uh, you know, those are things that I, I don't know. I don't think you recover from grief. I think you just learn to live with it differently. And I think what I have developed over time uh, doing this work for a while is kind of a, okay, I guess this is the way I would describe it. There are people that I'm going to work with who are going to either be sick forever or die. I don't know who they are. I can't, you know, we, we cannot predict who's going to do what. Um, we can make educated guesses. Uh, you know, obviously, the longer this has been going on for, the harder it is to change. But I, I, re I really think it comes down to making a choice to get better. Not one single one, just even something as simple as like, I want to be less sick. I can work with that. I, I really don't think anyone has to come. I don't think anybody has to want to get better to go to eating disorder treatment. I think you just have to be willing to go. 
and talk about why you don't want to get better. I think that's like the only first step. We need that consent to participate. I, I don't think it's fair to do things to people that don't want things done to them. We got to have that mutual agreement to work together as as treatment provider and treatment receiver. Um, but I try to assume that anyone can get better. So I'm always holding on to that hope while also tolerating the amb- the ambiguity, right? We talked about ambivalence in the beginning, the uncertainty of who's going to do it and who's not. So my assumption is anyone can. Um, and as long as there's breath, there's hope. So we're just going to keep playing along that way. But it's, it's, it's not, this is not like working with the well-worried. The thing that I don't feel is talked about enough is people often feel that it's a high mortality rate due to physical medical complications. And so often, if you don't think somebody is quote unquote medically unstable, you think they're going to be okay, at least, you know, survive. Eating disorders have a really high suicide rate. And I think that it's important for listeners, especially supports, to be aware of that. There is a high suicide rate. There is a lot of depression. There is a lot of anxiety. There is a lot of impulsivity in eating disorders. There is substance abuse. There is self-harm. So I think that that is something that needs to just be brought up um, so there's an awareness of it. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that people, especially... This, this was a hard lesson for me to understand, but I, again, I had, I had some really good teachers throughout my, my training. Um, people get used to it. You know, if you've, if you've had it, even, you know, if, if I have like a bright red light in my home, the first day it's installed, you know, just like someone put it up there and it just kind of lights up the room. They switched out my bulbs. The first day that I have to live with it, I'm really going to notice it. Two days, three days, a week, six months things just start to look red. There is a, a, a casualness that develops and, and kind of a, you, you get some calluses around living with this as though it were just the way things are, which, you know, if, if you're not ready to get better, I, I could understand why you'd need to do that, but it's always a risk. You, you can get used to it. And, you know, like you and I both know, having worked at higher levels of care, getting really ill doesn't necessarily feel like being really ill. Right. Like it's not like danger scales with pain one to one. Like as you're worse, you feel worse. People can be on the cusp of a major psychiatric medical disaster and it feels like nothing. Right. And, you know, you've had guests on the show who have lost people suddenly. Right. Just out of the blue that there was no sign. There was no warning sign. There was a diagnosis of an eating disorder. But doesn't feel like anything. And that, I hear that a lot from people. I just don't feel that bad. That's, that's, that's not uh, necessarily enough to go on. Yeah. The other example that I give, because I've had many clients say to me, Karen, I've been doing the same behaviors for 20 years, still here, everything's fine. And so what I say to them is, first of all, we cannot see what's happening inside to your muscles, 
your organs, things like that. And the example that I use is if you put a water balloon on a faucet and turn it, you turn the water on, it's still the same balloon, right? But it's getting thinner and thinner and thinner around, you know, the parts of the balloon where the water is. And it's still a water balloon, right? But eventually it is going to break. Unfortunately, with somebody's, you know, internal organs, we don't get the view of that. You get a view of a water balloon where you're like, wait a minute, too much, too much, too much. Oh, and then it goes. And that's another scary thing when someone says, but I've been doing this for 20 years and I've never had a medical consequence. And I'm like, not yet. Let's give it an hour. We never know what's going to happen. Yeah. No, no. I think that makes a lot of sense. And someone taught me this a long time ago too, similar to yours. If you and I flip a quarter, let's say 50 times in a row, and every time it comes up heads, what are the odds that the next flip, flip 51 is going to be heads? Do you know? I don't know. <laughs> it's still 50-50. Oh, I didn't know. I was like, am I supposed to know the answer? <laughs> no, no. It, it, it's still 50-50. The, the, whole, the whole point of that uh, sort of idea is what happened before has absolutely no bearing on what's going to happen tomorrow. Right? Like, it, it, can, it can be fine, fine. I mean, you, you and I both have done this enough to know. Fine, 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 not fine. All of a sudden, out of the blue, and these things do take lives. I think I think that's part of what kind of drew me to this. I'm a little bit of a, I'm not a risk taker, I guess, but I like, I like when th- I like getting in the middle of when things go wrong. Again, that's the fixer in me, and having my first real experience with eating disorders in a hospital setting, I think, really set me on to the idea that. This is dangerous. And as a clinician, I'm, I'm looking for a little bit of that kind of professional excitement. I, I have some friends who do, um, who work in ERs and hospitals and very clinical positions. And they, they, we all talk about having this kind of, not adrenaline rush for me at least, because it, it's usually not that acute. I'm, I'm not working in a hospital setting now, but it's kind of what draws me to it. Like this is really consequential stuff. And if people don't stop, really bad things can happen. And again, I think people, those who suffer from it can definitely get used to it, but it doesn't have to be that way. I think that's also what brought me to it. It's, it really doesn't have to be like this. And I have all these examples in my life. I'm fortunate enough to say like, they could, they did it. Why can't you? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting though, to know with that question, to, to ask that question with curiosity, because so if, if I said to a client, well, I got better, why can't you? If I ask it like that, they're going to feel judged and shamed and embarrassed and, oh, they're just going to go inward. They can't even do their, their this right. But if I say to them, let's try to figure out what the differences are, because there are obviously differences. And what do we need to, you know, work a little bit stronger at like everybody's recovery is different it's finding those pieces of the puzzle which by the way might not fit for five months and then you try to put it in again and you're like wait a minute how come that fits now so it's about timing it's about how much support you have on the outside it's about nutrition it's about courage 
how courageous are you to go into this deep exploration that you've been using your eating disorder for a really long time to not uncover? That's the, that's what the difference is. That's what, so, and that's what I say to people when they're like, I feel like a failure, Karen, you did it. I've heard other guests on your podcast have done it. I've gone to a facility where there's recovered professionals. What's wrong with me? And I say, it's not about anything that's wrong with you, but let's be curious. Did I take more risks? Are you putting up too many blocks? Are you saying I'll do it, but I can only do it when the food is this way or that way? Or will you, let's be curious. I think as long as there is still an eating disorder going on, there's still something we can do, right? Like it, it's, I, I really, I, I, you know, having been a Mountainito in for so long, um, I really, I, I'm, I'm a subscriber to the philosophy of the only people who don't get better are those who stop trying. But like you said, I, I, I think a, a mistake that sometimes maybe non-eating disorder specialists make maybe when, when working with people who have eating disorders is this, this idea of not inviting the eating disorder into the room. You know, I say this to my clients pretty early on. I want to know every messed up thought you think you have that you can't say to me about why you don't want to do this. I don't care how ridiculous it sounds. I don't care how shameful it sounds. I don't care how, you know, if, if you said this to your mom, she'd never speak to you again if that's what your belief is. I want to know what that thing is because if I have that material to work with, I bet you we can find some way to get you interested in doing the things that as of right now you say you don't want to do. Um, and that's really going to be you changing your own mind, not me making you do anything you don't want to do, but it's, it's, it's hard to do that all on your own. When, when, and, and I think that's true of anyone. If you're just working with your own thoughts, if you don't have someone else to run your ideas by as a therapist, as a client, it's, it, it can just feel like you're right. <laughs> you know, like I, what I believe is just correct and there's no way around it. So that's what I'm going to do. And I think that's what therapy really offers people is this this venue to put whatever, you know, strange beliefs you think you have on display and just have someone, you know, lovingly disagree with you. Like, I, I don't think you're hopeless. I don't think you can't do it. I don't think this is going to um, result in you losing control of yourself or becoming miserable and, you know, hating your life. And if that's true, we can talk about that too, but. And right there, that, that where you said, if that's true, we can talk about that too. I also want to honor that feeling. I want to say, whoa, like what, what does it feel like to be hopeless from your perspective? It's different for everybody. I want to honor everything that people feel they're afraid to say, because whether they say it or not, whether they have shame or not, they're feeling it, they're thinking it, they're envisioning it. So I want to say, let's, I'll honor it. You might not honor it right now, but I will. I want to honor that thought and I want to be here and keep going back to the word curious and I want to be curious about it. Absolutely. I think that, I think that's where family groups oftentimes um, did the most work. If you want to use that term, um, you know, really when, when, when we did the groups, why does getting better feel so bad? The, the honest answers people would talk about were usually things families haven't heard. Because there is this, this I think there's this popular wisdom that if you talk about why you don't want to get better, it's going to make your motivation go down. 
Um, I only want to hear about the positives, positive thinking. Let's go get better. It's time to do it. And I think there's a place and a role for cheerleading. I, I think when people do hard things and they get praise, that probably reinforces effort, right? But it's it's not that simple with something like an eating disorder because there is so much loss and so much pain and so many, you know, like you, you resolve one confusing thought and then two more pop up to take its place. It can feel like you're just, you know, cutting them in half instead of really resolving them. And having that openness and that curiosity and that relationship with your treatment team where you feel like you can bring those, you know, shameful, confusing thoughts to the table as therapy, I think that's important. And and inviting that into the process as much as possible, I think that actually enhances motivation rather than, you know, kind of uh, smothering it. Yes, I agree. Joe, for some reason, I love that image of cutting cutting the issue in half instead of, you know, working through. You're like, damn it, now I have two things to think about. It's true, though. It is true. It's like a web, you know, you, you, you get to one node and then it splits off into two and it can feel very overwhelming. Yeah. And I also say, that's okay. We're going to do the work anyway. It's really hard. Sometimes it can feel unbearable. And we're going to do it anyway. Progress is such a subtle thing sometimes. And and I think as a, as you know, again, as people who've done this for a little while, you, you start to learn to look for signs in, in unexpected places, right? Like if, if someone can just start a session with, here's why I didn't want to come see you today versus maybe the last six months, I've dragged that out of them. That's progress. Oh my God, that's progress. That is trust and understanding how therapy is to be utilized, right? Because a lot of our clients kind of consume the process like they consume food and it gets very overwhelming for them, right? But if I have someone who's normally petrified to come see me and they volunteer a disordered thought instead of me pulling it out of them, that's change. But it's it can be very hard to appreciate that if you haven't done this for a little while and you, you know, you've seen some cases where people do those things and you're like, Oh, oh, that, that's a good sign. And I think our clients sometimes forget that part too, right? Like just, just, just showing up on time for the appointment when you've never done that before, that's a sign of change. Yep. That's why I used to say to clients, if you come and knock on the office door and say, I just purged, I'm going to say, wow. Welcome to another beautiful step in recovery. You just owned it as opposed to hiding it. That's still staying in the eating disorder. You know, Joe, as always, I I wish we could go on for so much longer. But again, we do we do have to start winding down. I'm going to I'm going to as always ask one final question, but before I do, is there anything that I didn't ask or that you just want to include before we wind down? I mean, I think we really hit all the, the, the things that, that we sort of talked about in kind of preparation for this. I, I guess like the, the big kind of topper for all of it to me is really just honor your ambivalence as, an, as a genuine emotion. It, it, it's real. You're not wrong or screwed up for being afraid of treatment, being scared to change, thinking it's not worth it. I, I think after working with so many recovered people and people who have been you know, actively symptomatic and ill, I think I, it, this is a weird thought, 
but I've been thinking it a lot lately. I think hopelessness is actually a step. I think trans, I think people who are really ill, who given up, who have given up on themselves, I, I think that can actually be a legitimate piece of the sequence, your sequence. I don't think there's one, but your sequence in change. Because I've heard it from so many of my recovered colleagues. You know, they had these moments where they were, you know, one single thread away from quitting and going back and relapsing, and they and they didn't. And they just thought it wasn't going to be worth it. It's 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 an awful situation. Recovery sucks. I don't want to get better. And and just something kept them going, and it helped them change. But that hopelessness was a phase. So I think I think if you're someone who, you know, thinks that that's why you shouldn't be going to therapy, that's why you should be going to therapy. And and if you find a good eating disorder specialist, they're going to understand that the first meeting is just you know you trying to questioning if you should even be there. And if, if you can work with that as a therapist and, and, you know, good eating disorder professionals do, you, you can change too. So, so it was, that was a lot for a last thought, but that's, that's been up there for a little bit. It's why I always ask guests, because I want to hear all this. I want listeners to hear all this. So I think it's beautiful what you just said. And so now, Joe, for your final question of the podcast. If you could live in another time period, but stay in the same place you live now, when would you want to live? Oh gosh, that's so interesting. You know, like the area that I'm uh, living in now is very connected to the American Revolution. And I, I, I would not want to be involved in a conflict. I don't think I'm a warrior type at all. <laughs> I, 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 that's not for me. I, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful that others do it, but I don't think I'd have the courage for it. But all the history that must have been going on at that time is, is so interesting. Um, I think that would be my, my choice. But if, if I could go anywhere, regardless of time, I, I think it would be Japan. And, and, that, and that's because, um, I'm actually a quarter Japanese. My my mother is half, and then my my grandmother's 100. Um, percent And and I do feel some kind of connection to that place, but I've never made the trip. So if if we're talking about hypotheticals here, and you could just teleport me, and I wouldn't have to take a 24 hour plane ride across the world during a pandemic. During a pandemic, I I think I would at least want to know. It, it it seems like a very different way of life compared to the American average, and uh, you know something about it feels home home like to me, even though I've never visited. So. That'd be a hard sell, but but somewhere between those two. Yeah, yeah. It sounds beautiful. Really, Joe. Joe, again, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's really been an honor to be here. And uh, I, I feel lucky to be a part of the field and the profession. I Again, I kind of landed in this by accident, but uh, it, it has been a lot of fun for all the ups and downs and, and you know, challenges emotionally. Uh, I don't think I really do anything else. I, I think anything else I would do would be boring. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 you get used to the roller coaster. It becomes fun. I agree. I agree. All right, Joe. (laughs) Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I look forward to talking with all of you again next week. Okay, take care and stay safe. 
That's a wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. All right, everybody. Be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week.